Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend who clearly needs an individual development plan, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, the last episode of Season 2, we enlist the help of colleagues in a conversation about the joys and challenges of being a good mentor. Along the way, we also mention Cinco de Cuatro, Fozzie Bear, Trash Compactors and Rubber Snakes, Pitchers at Linda's, Giant Jugs of Wine, Meeting the Dog, Someone in the Control Tower, 20 to Life, Parallel Play, Escalators and Stairways, Puzzle Pieces, Terrifying Your Students, and Professor Q. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Oftentimes, you and I have the presence of mind of realizing the date that an episode is going to drop and trying to do something to acknowledge that special date. This is not one of those times. Instead, I want to acknowledge the date that we are recording on. So my computer monitor says it's May 4th. Yes, you have said that wrong. It is May the 4th, as in May the 4th be with you. It is Star Wars Day, my friend. (laughs) This is why you and I are the only friends each other has. (laughs) Well, the fact that you didn't know that makes me question my choices. You know what I thought you were going to say? What? I'm a huge Arrested Development fan. Uh-huh. There was an episode where they wanted to have a celebration before Cinco de Mayo, and so they created their own holiday, which was Cinco de Cuatro. <laughs> <laughs> it was May 4th. And in the bayside town of Newport Beach, the annual celebration known as Cinco de Cuatro was underway. (laughs) May the Cinco de Cuatro be with you. (laughs) So I do like Star Wars. And my kids really, really like Star Wars. And one of my favorite characters, which, you know, doesn't make me unique, is Yoda. Mm -hmm. One of the best characters ever. He is just the super mentor of all of Star Wars. Try not. Do. Or do not. There is no try. Oh, nice tie. Huh? I got to tell you, I like Star Wars. I'm not a hardcore fan, but I enjoy it. I enjoyed it as a kid. You and I came up together through the system, and so the (laughs) 70s is when we were going to movies. The thing with Yoda is I can't get out of my head that it's not Fozzie Bear. (laughs) The voice. (laughs) Ah, waka waka. Are you ready, comedy partner? Waka waka! Yoda mentored Qui-Gon Jinn, who mentored Obi-Wan Kenobi, who mentored Luke Skywalker, who mentored Rey, and I thought that that was absolutely perfect for today. In celebration of Cinco de Cuatro, (laughs) and may the fourth be with you. (laughs) So your kids have been through these movies? The old ones, it's so funny because it was pre-CGI and so they're in the trash compactor throwing rubber snakes at each other (laughs) and the bar scene. Mm -hmm. It really is funny. It's like stuff you could buy on Amazon where you and I were like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it looks like a middle school costume party. They are way into the Ray character. Yeah. The recent stuff. So they like it. Do they see you as their Luke Skywalker then? More of one of the characters in the bar scene, I think. (laughs) 
no. It's been since about age maybe three or four that they've seen me as the Luke Skywalker. I kind of always wanted to be like Yoda dad, you know, be this wise figure who would be seen as the person who has the answer to problems. And I think on the whole... I maybe pulled that off for a little while, but by now they can see right through it. That's an arc sometimes I think about in mentoring and advising graduate students, as I really do over the years and over a lot of years have seen this arc of almost parenting Mm -hmm. and not in just a trite way. I mean, like for real. So you think about a first year student. And you've got a kid and you can do no wrong in their eyes as you know everything, you can do everything. And then they kind of start to suspect that maybe, maybe there's a little bit of the man behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally, not always, but there is a distinct realization that you're not omniscient and all powerful. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, okay, I kind of suspected it, but then I don't. Then they start getting into preteen years, and, like, they have sleepovers, and they start trading stories about (laughs) parents and how embarrassing they are and stuff. It's just in grad school, now it takes the form of quant drinks. Uh (laughs) You go to Linda's, and you get a couple of pictures, and you talk about, oh, I can't believe. Uh And then you continue into the adolescent phase. Now, fortunately, this doesn't hold with all students, but for a subset of students— there becomes kind of the surly phase where, oh, mm-hmm. I'm so mad at dad. I can't believe that he has a curfew and he's making me do this. And one of my favorite is, I can't wait to get out of the house where I can be mm-hmm. on my own. <laughs> so there's a transition out of the house. And then there's a period of like a little homesickness, right? Is it's like, oh, I like coming back to my room. And then the favorite and any parent or any kid who has transited through this, they get their own students to advise which is the equivalent of having your own children. And then there's some degree of understanding. (laughs) My mom, who is 89, and I was a surly adolescent. Weirdly, for like 15 years, I was a surly (laughs) adolescent. My mom thinks that the cosmic karma of me having twin 16-year-old girls and dealing with all the accoutrement Mm -hmm. that go with that is she just thinks that it is the galaxy paying me back. Absolutely. Hand of God type stuff right there. And I have called mom and said, I so understand. (laughs) This is the final episode of the season. What we've done, as we have often done, is picked a topic and decided to subcontract out how we're going to talk about it. Oh, yeah. We decided to exit on mentoring and advising. We reached out to a handful of people and asked them to submit an audio clip sharing some of their insights into advising and mentoring. We thought what we would do is what we've done in the past, which is play a clip, talk about a little bit, play another clip, talk about it. We learned the hard way that we're going to talk about all of the clips so that we don't get sued for not (laughs) adequately discussing one of the clips. That was rough. That was tough go. Yeah. These people were incredibly generous with their time and sent audio clips that were much longer than what we're playing here. And just simply to edit things down, we cut out quite a bit of what a number of people said. So we're only getting like a taste test of some of the contributions. I'm excited about it. And these are people who are recognized as terrific mentors, people who are passionate about mentoring, as you will see. 
I'll queue up the first one, and as I often recommend to people, be careful who you date in graduate school, uh-huh. because you're going to need to find two jobs at some point. <laughs> I am very excited, as the first contributor is my lovely wife, Andrea Hussong. Andrea is a professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina. She is a clinical psychologist. She's a real one, unlike me. Yep. She's licensed and does research in child and adolescent development. We met in grad school in the same lab under Mm -hmm. the advisement of Lori Chasson, who will also be one of our contributors later in the episode. When I think about mentoring, I think about it as something that everyone needs, whether you're junior or you're senior. And so we all benefit by having mentors. I think about it the way I think about everything developmental. People change over time, that they're different from one another. Some people know what they need and some people don't. I definitely think about mentoring as a relationship. And I like to be pretty concrete and have good communication when I'm doing mentoring because I have found that to be key. Good communication to me includes using an individual development plan where you're clear on what the goals are for the mentee, where the mentor is clear on what the objectives are for a given semester and can agree to help meet those objectives, turnaround times for papers or how often they're willing or able to reply to email. Those written agreements make everyone a little bit more accountable, but also make the communication much more clear. And I think that's one of the tools that I have found to be the most useful. You don't realize the power that you have when you are a mentor with a mentee. And even if it's not something that you embrace, you have it anyway. So your words may carry weight that you don't anticipate. And so you want to be impeccable with your words. I think you also want to be clear then with your expectations, both in terms of what you have for your mentee, but also in terms of what you can provide so that you can be the type of mentor that you want to be. And I think that we have moved long past the days when a single mentor is all that we needed because we work in much more of a team science environment and we are doing more training across fields or applications into different areas. We may have different life experiences that we take with us when we negotiate careers. And all of these things may be ways that we think about what we need in a mentoring team. I think another thing that was really important for me in trying to build mentoring teams was the emphasis on peer mentoring. And I've certainly learned as much from my peers in graduate school as anybody, well, maybe except for Patrick, but in general, I learned a lot from my peers in graduate school. Just kidding, honey. This is one of the things these days that I think is so valuable and important that we want to make sure that this is a part of the training programs going forward as we're coming back from the pandemic and we can increase the amount of interaction we have with our peers and with other faculty and mentors. So thinking about those ways that you're building mentors that are senior to you and those that are at your own level but may have different experiences who still serve to mentor as you're moving through the career space. Wow, you totally married up. Oh, (laughs) you are exactly right. Boy, I don't even know where to start in all the good stuff that she said in there. The very opening line I resonate to deeply, which is everybody needs mentoring always. This is not something that goes away. So I've been in the game for 25 years And I still call my mentor, Lori. Mm -hmm. She's still my first phone call after all of these years. That notion that you're fully baked and ready to be put out on the shelf is not well-founded, as I think all of us benefit from that. And not only from our own advisors, is it's very hard for me to say this. I use you as a mentor. (laughs) God help you. Well, I've heard that before. (laughs) 
So I really resonated to that notion that this is a forever thing. Absolutely. And, you know, for new faculty members, we have gotten better about putting mentoring training into place. There are senior faculty who help junior faculty to be better mentors of students. But associate professors could use some mentoring, too, and full professors could use some mentoring, too. And there really isn't a structure around those kinds of things. So I think in the spirit of being in academia, we are always learning, whether it's about our content or about being a better mentor right out of the gate. I think she hit a good one. It made me think of a funny line. I can't place the movie, but it was uh, one of these intergenerational things. And the grandparents, the adult kids, and then the little kids are all at a big family dinner. And one of the adult kids turns to the dad and says, you know, it's never too late to buy one of those parenting books. The other thing that I really resonated to is just that notion of communication. Mm-hmm. If I look back over my entire life as a surly teenager all the way up to where I am now, I can hang 80% of issues that I've encountered in some way related to poor communication. Andrea is a big fan of these individual development plans, IDPs, and Mm -hmm. she was a center director. She's involved in these T32 training programs, and these are standard. They articulate what are the goals of the student, what are the expectations of the student, what can the advisor provide, and then what I think is really important is it gives observable objective marks to hit at the end of each year. I don't use those to the extent that I should, and I think my own advising would be improved if I better integrated that kind of approach. It's one of those things that I go, dang, what a good idea that someone else is doing. So I completely support it. And I agree also, I would be a better advisor if I were more formal, more documenting and kinds of things. There are other aspects of my administrative life where I absolutely am that person. But with students, somehow I haven't incorporated that. But I think it's a wonderful suggestion. What did you resonate to? I don't remember the exact words that she chose, but it's that as mentors, we are often different with different mentees. So I don't have the same relationship with each of my mentees. They bring different skill sets. They bring different personalities. And so I am different with each of them when they arrive I am different with each of them along their career track, and I'm not the same mentor to each of them late in their program than I am early in their program. So I like the idea that as a mentor, we are changing. The needs of a new student are not the same as the needs of an older student. Ideally, I am these training wheels that become increasingly superfluous, and then I'm really just the dad saying, I'm hanging on, it's okay, you know, as the bike is riding (laughs) down the street under its own power. So I like the idea that there's some individualization both with respect to individual students and with respect to time. I think a lot of our conversation today is going to tie back to these parenting things. Several people will comment on how it's a developmental process, and it's absolutely true. As a first-year student, what they need and know and what they best respond to can be radically different from a fourth- or fifth-year student. One thing that I liked that she commented because it tied it directly to the pandemic Mm -hmm. is that notion of peer mentoring. And I think at least in my own approach, I see that as something that is great if it happens and I like it and I support it. But again, I don't 
tend to do things to foster that or scaffold that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we really do have to think as things are opening back up and we're getting back into the classroom and back into the lab of how can we get students back on track. And I think having senior students reach out to more junior students in a structured way, not just over drinks at Linda's complaining about your advisor, but... It's almost like pulling the older sibling in and say, hey, I need your help. I'll tell you, one of the things I like about that is what you're also doing in that kind of relationship is you are mentoring someone in mentoring. You know, there are many aspects of the development of some of my more senior students that I've been involved in their whole education arc. But one of the things I want to make sure is that when I turn them out loose into the world, that they have some experience mentoring. And when you have a cadre of really good young students and then you have some really good senior students, you can actually use that as a teachable opportunity at both ends. And so I I really like that. Let's turn to our next contributor. I will let her introduce herself. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Blankson, and I'm a full professor in the psychology department at Spelman College. Spelman College is a small, historically Black liberal arts college for women that is located in Atlanta, Georgia. Spelman is an undergraduate institution, so most of the mentoring that I do is of undergraduate students. As a quantitative psychologist, I know that most of my students will not go on to pursue a PhD in quant methods, but I also know the value of having a strong quantitative background when students enter graduate school. I train my students to be strong in quant so that when they get into the graduate programs, they feel confident in their abilities to succeed. Another tip for mentors is you shouldn't just tell students that they can do something. Instead, show them how to do it or make sure that they know your door is always open for them to be able to ask questions. I make sure to let them know that if they are interested in trying to publish something or present their work, they can follow up with me and we can talk more about how to get this done. A few years ago, I actually sought out a conference and took five of my students on a road trip for them to present. For a few of them, this was their first conference. I also try to reassure my students that it's okay to fail. I share my failures with my students. So for example, in the past, I've shown students journal article rejection letters, and I share with them how I deal with these rejections. Not all of my students are going to end up where I am. Most of my ideas on mentoring, I learned from observing the mentors who I've had in my life. My graduate school mentor, John Horn, asked me what I really wanted to do with my life. I definitely did not say to him, well, John, I would one day like to be a full professor at a college or university. Instead, I shared with them a personal goal that I had. Instead of talking about my dissertation, which was why we were meeting, he took the time to give me advice on how to achieve that goal that I shared with him. And that meant a lot to me because it let me know that no matter what I did in this life, he was always going to be in my corner. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of mentoring of students happens that way. I think as mentors, we have to be more flexible and open to our students and their interests. My goal as a mentor is to help students to get to where they want to go and not necessarily where I see them going. Not only will most graduate students not go on to academic careers, but many don't want that type of career. Sometimes graduate students feel pressured to pursue that type of career because that is all they've seen or that's what they believe is expected of them. And I think a good mentor will allow students to see all of the options available to them, encourage their students to explore different options, and to celebrate their students no matter what their ultimate educational or career choice is. 
Again, lots of good stuff in there. Now, I will say that I have almost no experience mentoring undergraduate students, and I believe that's what she does exclusively, right? That's right. And her goal in mentoring is to help her students get to a grad program. Yeah, and we are grateful. One of the big themes for me is about failure and that... (laughs) We want to be the superheroes sometimes, but I think the most valuable lessons are showing our students what happens when we lose our balance and how we regain our balance, how we handle failure, how we are always, always learning. In fact, the greatest teacher failure is. Huh? What do you think? (laughs) I think it's incredibly important to unambiguously communicate to students that We fail more in this field often than we succeed. Mm -hmm. And whether that be a rejected paper, a grant that was turned down, some plan that we had that didn't follow through, or the simpler day-to-day stuff where you have an idea and you're really excited about it, and then it just doesn't work out. And that's a failure. Mm -hmm. I really like the two things she said is one is – Identifying those failures, right? Showing objective evidence, showing a rejection letter. I have a rejection letter I got from an AE that was just mean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I share that. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is she had a comment about and how she dealt with it. I think that's even more important. Not only that we have these failure experiences, but here are some coping mechanisms, support systems, reactions that we have. It's one of the old martial arts things is everybody gets knocked down. It's who stands back up. And I know that's trite, but it's actually true. So this is kind of funny is that rejection I got is a mm-hmm. chapter in one of your books. <laughs> wow. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> I'm rethinking the second edition. <laughs> In the end, for me, it's important that we're not modeling knowledge for our students as much as we're modeling learning. It's by that learning we come to know a lot of things. But I think the more valuable lesson is that they see us not knowing things and they see us, as you said, getting back up. They have to see how you handle it. You know what it is for me is almost more of a catcher in the rye kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I got that AE decision and I didn't agree with it. And you start seeing that not everybody knows everything about everything. I thought, no, this is good work. I think I've got an interesting thing here. And oh, for the love of God, Hancock is all over me about this blown deadline. I'm just going to slap some lipstick on this pig and get it out to him. I think there's a growing up element to it where you say, I respectfully disagree. I think that's not a correct evaluation of what we're doing here. And I'm going to continue with this work because I think it's valuable. The other thing that I really liked in her comment was that notion of the kind of relationship you have with your mentor. And this is going to come up in a couple of later audios as well. Yeah. But it's that notion that, yes, there's that professional element of mentoring, but there's also a personal element. One of her most salient memories of John was not an R&R or a dissertation or a specific aim, but his recommendations on how to try to achieve this personal goal that she had. And that's one of her most salient memories. Mm-hmm. I really like that component. Have you taken a road trip with your students? No. <laughs> I have not taken a road trip with my students. I did share a room with my advisor at a conference one time. And let's just say that was sweetly eye-opening. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> 
I'm glad you used the word sweetly. <laughs> when your advisor shows up to the hotel room and the first thing he does is he flops on the bed with a giant jug of wine that he purchased on the way from the airport. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> So thank you, Nyena. Those are wonderful thoughts and observations. Next up, we have J.P. Lorenzo from University of Delaware. He's in Department of Psychology, right? Yep, he's a clinical psychologist, and he is a man of wonderful unpredictability because Jean-Philippe Lorenzo does not speak a word of French, but is (laughs) fluent in Spanish. Turning to mentoring, from the very beginning, I try to meet with each of my students at least an hour a week. I feel like that's important to do, even if there aren't specific agendas set for those meetings. It just gives me a chance to get to know them so that I can understand their backgrounds, kind of where they come from, what motivates them. And it helps me to personalize mentoring in the long run. I think one thing that I try to keep in mind is give students positive reinforcement for efforts that they're expending on a project or on a paper. Try to celebrate even the small wins with them. Academia can be a pretty tough environment in terms of rejection. I try to share with grad students my experience of being a faculty member. So what are the things that are stressing me out and how do I try to manage that? I also talk to them work-life balance issues, which I think are really important. And I think kind of humanizes me and humanizes faculty to students and shows them that we are often struggling with some of the same things that they're struggling with. And maybe we're just further along down the line. I talk with them about career paths and career goals, but I tell them I do not expect them to be a mini me. I don't expect them to be a faculty member. I let them know that from the very beginning because I want them to be open with me about what they're feeling and where they want to go and what struggles they have. Sometimes I suggest that a student talk to another faculty member or another graduate student in terms of mentoring in a particular area that I may not know much about. I feel like it's important to have my graduate students over the house to meet my family, my wife, my daughter, our dog. I just feel like it personalizes things. Final point comes from a quote by Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I feel like that kind of encapsulates the experience of being a mentor. If you think about it on a long-term basis, you're going to give students a lot of feedback. You're going to have lots of conversations. They may forget some of the little things that you talk about or that you've done with them or that they've learned to do from you. In the end, what they're going to remember is just how you made them feel. Did you express a sense of that relationship was one that you valued and time that you spent with them was something that was useful enjoyable. I have to say, I enjoy meeting with my students. It's one of the better parts of my job. I derive a lot of satisfaction from that. That's all I have for now. Patrick, I hope this is more or less what you were looking for. If not, tough (laughs) (laughs) I like that he could somehow work both tough shit and Maya Angelou. (laughs) I told you, unpredictability. That's why I like JP. Mm Mm-hmm. You know what I like is he also used the term stress, what stresses him out. I think sometimes students forget that we're stressed out during finals week, (laughs) that, you know, we have a to-do list and that we're laid on things and that I stay up at night thinking about, oh my gosh, what am I going to, how am I going to do this, right? That's kind of a universal reaction. It's not just failure. Yeah, I like what JP says. 
you know, especially if you are training these people for careers in academia, which not everyone is, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, but having them become aware of some of the challenges that exist as faculty members, how we cope with that, talking about it with them, that can be part of a nice relationship. That last word that you used, I think, is central to what JP was talking about, that relationship, Mm -hmm. about humanizing things, about getting to know students. There's a lot of variability on that across faculty members, mentors, advisors, and across students. Who feels comfortable with that, the goodness of fit with a particular student. But I really like that he talks about that notion of building a relationship. He used a couple of times the term humanizes. It humanizes you as a faculty, you know, to meet the dog. That's important. Mm -hmm. The quote that he read really is a centerpiece to that, remembering how you made them feel. And I think that was a little bit evident in Nyena's comment about her memory from John was this very emotional kind of, he didn't talk about my dissertation. He talked about this thing that was important to me on a personal level. So I really resonated to that in JP's comments about being very intentioned on trying to build a relationship in that way. I don't know that I get that right as a mentor. I think that the ability to do that, the desire to do that, to build a relationship with your student is in part a function of who the mentor is as a person. I want to find this balance where I am respecting the space that the students have. I don't want to immerse them in my life, and I don't want to be immersed in their lives. On the other hand, I want to communicate to them that I care very deeply about their success. I care about their well-being. I care about their work-life balance. But I don't know that I'm getting this part of the mentoring thing right. I just don't know. It won't shock you, but I'm very similar. I am more distant on a personal relationship level, on average with my students, not all, but Mm -hmm. on average, than maybe JP is or maybe Andrea or Nyana. Mm -hmm. Part of it is, you're right, it's congenital, right? It's just our temperament. Mm -hmm. What I will even tell my students is my lack of inquiry into your personal life is not disinterest but respect for boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I literally tell my students, if you want to share something with me that's important to you or that may impact our professional working relationship, I have all the time that you want to talk about that, but I'm not going to inquire. The way that I hope that I make up for that is in a culture I try to create, you know, as an administrator, as a faculty member, I want my students to feel like this is an academic home. I want them to feel like there are people around who care deeply about them. I want them to build some of their own support networks and structures. And we do have a big fall party with all the students bringing food, and it's a great time, and everybody remembers it as a wonderful tradition. So I hope that what I might lack in terms of these more personal connections I might make up for in the tone that I try to set in the community that we have. That's exactly right. I would agree with that. All right. The next one comes to us from Pamela Davis Keene at the University of Michigan, where she's professor of psychology. Roll tape. Hi, Greg and Patrick. Thank you so much for asking me to talk about my ideas regarding mentoring graduate students. It's not something that I knew right away when I started my career. I took 
some of the workshops that were available to me at the University of Michigan to think about mentorship. And then it's just kind of changed across time as I've thought more about how do I help students and postdocs really kind of come into their own and and start their own independent careers. So I learned about halfway through my academic career that it was important to spend time on fewer students than to grow a large lab. Sometimes in academia, it's incentivized to have these really large labs to show that you are a good mentor, but then you actually get labs that are so large or no longer have enough time to really do the kind of mentoring you need to do. I decided the best for me was to mentor fewer students and space them out across their graduate careers. It also helps me have a stronger kind of senior leadership with me while we're helping to guide uh, the new students coming through. I feel like that was one of the most important things was getting a good sense of how big my lab should be. I actually have my students approve any new student or a postdoc that comes in the lab. They look at their CVs, they meet with them before they join the lab, and then they they give me feedback. And part of this is because I understand how important it is to have kind of harmony in the lab. And what I mean is that not everyone always gets along 100% of the time, but you respect each other. So I feel like mentors have to put some time into this to think about who are the people in my lab? How do they work together? I also support my students in any directions they want to go, whether it's in academia or non-academic jobs. I don't say that I'm training them to go into academia. It's pretty clear that's what we're doing in graduate school. But I spend a lot of time talking to them about their options. Also, to make sure they understand what an academic job can provide uh, and then what other jobs can provide as well. I'm a developmental psychologist, so I allow for my students to develop across their graduate career. So what they've come in thinking that they were going to do, what we started them off with, may not be where they end up. And so I spend a lot of time watching them talk about research and trying to think about what their passion is toward a topic because I'm highly connected in my area and I help my students become connected. This occurred for me when I was in graduate school and it continues to be one of the best things that happened in my career. So any network I'm involved with, I bring my students to, I find opportunities for them. And I think it's incredibly important for mentors to network their students in the profession in any way they can, because it it really opens up job opportunities and research opportunities. We celebrate every accomplishment in our lab. Graduate school and academia can be just really tough. And I think it's important that we take a moment and say, here's something good that happened. It may seem small, but it was a good thing. And I'm going to take that today. And that goes along with my idea about work-life balance. I tell my students all the time that you set the agenda for yourself and your family. We do not do life or death research. And so we should not create lives as if we do, where we have to stay up late at night, getting something done and wake up early in the morning and spend all of our weekends doing it. You need to learn how to organize your life so that you can do the things during Monday through Friday, if that's the best time you do work and then have the weekends off. I want students to come in and take a piece of what I do, but expand it in new directions because I think it's important for them to start learning this independent career so that by the time they transition into either a postdoc or or into an academic position or non-academic position, they're not just little mini-me's. Instead, they have a very distinctive voice. I want them to know things I know, and I want them to know more than I know, because it also contributes to my lab to have this different kind of independent thinking. Wow. Oh, man, there's a ton of cool stuff there. I really liked her opening notion of how many students can you successfully advise Hmm. and what are the pressures of having a big lab with lots of students. Mm-hmm. She literally made some comment about the responsibility of uh, advisors determining what is the optimal size of your lab. And I really mm-hmm. like that being intentional. 
and then involving her existing students to build the lab in the future with new students is also very intentioned. And I like that a lot. It is something that's less relevant to me because, at least in my own work, but I think in quant more in general, we don't have these really large labs Mm -hmm. where we have undergrads and grads and postdocs and we're doing data collection and we're out in the field. And I mean, Pam is doing amazing stuff in her research. It's a little bit less relevant to me because it's a much smaller, much more focused kind of work that I do. But that notion of there are institutional pressures to have big productive labs, but the larger the lab, the harder it is for you to advise individual students in the way that you might otherwise want to. We don't have a lab system per se where I am. And so I translated what she said into the number of advisees you can handle simultaneously. I like the idea of being able to be more active in determining the number that you have. And I thought it was kind of interesting about having the other students play a role in who joins the lab. I have mixed feelings about it, honestly. Tell me about that. Why are they mixed? One of the reasons is that I think in some ways I see how pieces fit together better than some of the students will. Some of the more senior students, I think, probably should be gaining some wisdom and be able to see how the pieces of a lab team or the pieces of advisees can fit together to be able to do more. But I think a lot of the cool things that we do, you, even with your crappy book chapters that you give to me that you can't get published... (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the cool things that we do are in the, as we say, in the interstices. They're in between skills that we have. And I think in a more early career student and even in an early career faculty member, there is a tendency to identify people in terms of the similarities that they have with you rather than the value that they have in the complementary skills. So there's a part of me that says, yeah, I am interested in your input, but I want to follow through on that so that we can think about it more holistically. There's a bigger picture here that I'm not sure they all have a sense of. I like both of those elements. I'm in the middle ground. Everything Mm -hmm. I do, whether it be in the personal life, professional life, and specifically here in talking about advising, I feel like everything I do is in moderation. Mm -hmm. I really like what Pam is talking about in terms of involving the students. I think there's a double advantage to that. One is it does give you feedback, right? Students see things that you don't. But I think there are also downstream benefits of really fostering a feeling in your existing students that they're part of the whole, Mm -hmm. that they have a voice. And I think it goes back to what Andrea started with all of this in communication is to say, look, I'm not going to let my students pick who goes into the lab, but I will use them as a source of information. And I, you use the word holistic. The student's evaluation and recommendation will be weighed along with all the other factors, but that the existing students have a voice in who we are and where we're going, I think is really important. I'm sold on the students as an important source of information, for sure. Mm -hmm. And listening to that is part of mentorship. So you're right. I shouldn't be acting like the dad on high that I sometimes mistakenly think that I am. And she said something that ties into this that I think is so, so important, and that is that we want our students to be smarter than us. And I've met people who don't feel that way, but for the most part, if a student doesn't leave with a bigger skill set, being able to do the things that we can do and then some, I feel like we've kind of sold them short. 
And I know that the students that I am absolutely just blessed to be working with right now are in many ways so much more capable, certainly than I was as a student, but they have skills that I don't have now. And they're taking classes in things that I don't know about. They're making connections that I can't possibly make. So I love the point that she made that students are smart, in many ways smarter than us. I think that it's our job to try and nurture that, to help those things reach fruition, help them to go on to things that are even greater. I really like that Pam made that very point, but she also is very explicit in saying because her lab benefits from it. Mm, yeah. This is a quid pro quo kind of thing is, yes, of course, we want our students to know more and stand on the shoulder of giants and all of these things, but there's also payback. Mm-hmm. My goal is for you to be smarter than I am and to know more than I do. But in exchange, you're going to improve the work we're doing as a group because you're bringing those skills back to us. Yeah. I really like that perspective. Totally agreed. The last thing I liked that Pam raised, and this is something I struggle with, and she even had a wonderful little chuckle to herself when she said is that she's a developmental psychologist. Right. And you can apply these developmental principles to the trajectories of students. And Andrea opened with that as well, as allowing people to develop and pursue interests. I feel very, very strongly about that. But I've got guardrails on that because as a student starts to move out of my area of expertise, I'm not able to advise them. Mm-hmm. It's not that I am not interested in it. It's not that that's not what my research is. It's more, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about as you're reading these articles, you're taking these classes. And so when you show me specific aims for a dissertation proposal, I'm not able to tell you if those are the important questions, who is working in this area, are you thinking about this correctly? And both Pam and Andrea, and I think JP said this, but I cut it out (laughs) because I asked for a five-minute audio clip and he sent me 22 minutes. Uh (laughs) This notion of moving more toward a team science co-mentoring advising team, Mm -hmm. and that's not something we've really talked about yet, is old school is who was your advisor? This was my advisor. And now I think you need a primary person. You got to have somebody in the control tower that's bringing the planes in (laughs) and sending the planes out. Flight 209 are clear for Vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? But to have a mentoring team, I think is a huge advantage in this day and age. Absolutely. And I think the last contributor really hits that home even more. Oh, that's a good transition. This is Lori Chasson. Lori is a professor at Arizona State University in the Department of Psychology. She studies intergenerational transmission of parental alcoholism as a risk factor. She's also one of the world's experts in developmental processes of cigarette and tobacco use. She's my advisor. She was Andrea's advisor. As I've commented on earlier episodes, Lori is the only thing separating me from 20 to life (laughs) instead of a tenured faculty position. I cannot convey the extent to which Lori has positively impacted me and has led me to where I am today. She is also a dear part of our family. Her husband, Clark, and she are adoptive grandparents for Mm -hmm. our kids. And we were at a conference. It was a crowded hotel lobby. 
and Lori and Clark came out of the elevator and my girls were seven or eight years old and my girls screamed and ran across the lobby and threw themselves into their arms. And somebody said, oh, I love it when grandkids see their (laughs) grandparents. And I thought, how can you have a better outcome of an advisor-advisee relationship than that? That's lovely. Lori didn't want to just submit an audio. She wanted to have a conversation. So she and I recorded a conversation with the two of us. It was 45 minutes long and was amazing. (laughs) I have cut it down to six minutes and change to highlight it. Mm -hmm. And also, I figured I was not contributing in any way to this audio. I removed myself entirely. All right. Also, she comments on Daniel. Daniel is her son, born the month that I started grad school, the fall of 1988. Daniel is my professional age. He is 32 years old and married. (laughs) But she refers in the audio to Daniel, and that's her son. Nice. So let's hear from Lori. When I came up 40 years ago, there was like zero training or thinking about training in either teaching or mentoring. So the training was around research, but nobody thought about how to train a young faculty person in how to be either a teacher or a mentor. I would say that I was utterly and completely clueless. And even when you came, which I really shouldn't have been as clueless, because by the time you got there, I'd been around for a while. It was more like parallel play. We were all working on AFTP trying to figure out how to analyze the damn data, trying to find interesting research questions, trying to figure out how to answer the interesting research questions we were finding. And it was like we were playing in the sandbox together. And I hadn't really stepped back to think, what is a mentor or what should I be doing and really be intentional? You know, there wasn't that much of a sense of this is what a mentor does. This is the role. And I've gotten way more intentional because, as I said, I started, I gave it like zero thought oh, I like these students. They're really smart. We're doing fun work together. We're just going to keep doing fun work. It's all fine. The job has become way more complicated. One way I think it's become more complicated is that students' career choices have become more complicated. When I started as a faculty member, there was very much a default that students were going to become academics. But now I feel like students' career choices have become way more complicated. We have students who go into policy. We have a lot of students now who want research careers in industry. Between being director of grad studies and running a T32, I discovered I had to be a lot more open-minded about the way I thought to help students try to construct a career. It may be the career they wanted for years ago. It's not necessarily the career they want now. So one of the things it's taught me is I have to bring in a lot more expertise. What I don't know about constructing a career in industry, but I know people who know how to do that. It's like hooking students up with the right people or co-mentoring students because sometimes you don't have all the skills they need. The other things I learned by screwing up, not with you, never with you, but So one of the interesting experiences I had when Daniel was a teenager, I hired him at minimum wage to do Scott work in the lab, and I was not supervising him. It meant that he spent a summer really hanging out in the lab. And one day over dinner, Daniel says to me, you know, all your students are terrified of you. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, how is this actually possible? Because literally, Patrick, in 40 years, I swear to God, I have no memory of like ever firing a student 
failing a student, yelling at a student, that's not the way I see myself at all. There was like a horrible revelation that I was actually a terrifying mentor. So one of the things that I've really tried to do is stop being terrifying because I started out completely clueless and not mindful. I wasn't really thinking about the power you have over a student's career, funding power, letters of recommendation power, publication decisions. Each of this to us, like after years, you do it over and over again. And to us, it doesn't seem like a big deal anymore. But to a grad student, it's terrifying. And I think one of the things that students don't realize sometimes is how much their mentors really love them and appreciate them and value them. Sometimes, of course, the best part of those is after people graduate and then you get to be friends. I think young faculty have bigger challenges because I also think the expectations on young faculty have ratcheted up. So they come with a little more formal training. They know what they're doing a little more in terms of teaching and mentoring, but the expectations on them for their own careers and for getting tenure have ratcheted up as well. If I think about a young person just walking into an assistant professor position, before they start messing around with grad students, the first thing I think they should do is sit down and think about what it is they need over the next year or two. Because I think that one of the real tension points and problem points in mentoring, and this was a really early lesson I learned, is like to separate my own needs in terms of what papers I needed to accomplish or what the grant needed to get done from what you guys needed to be done. Because the stuff that I needed to be done, we can negotiate that in part of a paid research assistantship, right? That's a job. But what you needed as a grad student to develop your career in terms of skills and publications, I need to learn to separate that from what I need. And that's where I feel young people are very vulnerable. So I learned that as a pretty early lesson, but it was a pretty easy lesson for me because I came as a young person already with an R01. But nowadays, people don't get grants that young anymore. So there is this period of time where young faculty need a lot. They need a lot of productivity. They need a lot of data collected. They need a lot of publications. And where it can get very dicey with grad students is you can't use your grad students. I mean, you can, but if you do that, that role conflict is going to be a landmine in the mentoring. In the T32, the DGS role... The panels I served on in the college, if you ask me to name one thing that caused mentoring disaster, it's that role conflict. You are, as a grad student, only of value to me if you produce what I need, which is an employee-employer role. It's not a mentoring role. It's a big problem, and I worry about that for young faculty. Given the pressures on them, their own needs are real. So I would say what they need to think through is how they're going to get their needs met and still be a good mentor. What you give is going to be what you are, right? In that way, it's kind of like parenting. Like you try your best. You try to be intentional. You have a plan of what you think you want to accomplish. I think a lot of what students are going to learn is what you are. And, and one of the things I think is that people, if they worry too much, they forget the fun part. And so, you know, for me, mentoring has been the central joy. If you ask me the thing I love the most of my 40-year career, no latency, easy, easy. It's mentoring grad students. I think to be a good mentor, you have to really like doing it. So I really kind of feel like if you did it like your students, they might pick that up. <laughs> I love that last part, that if you don't like your students, they're going to kind of pick that up. Uh, it's so nice to hear from your Yoda. Right? It's wonderful. There's so much there. She is so skilled at what she does. 
She has been director of graduate studies for several decades. She has, for something like 30 years, run a T32 training program. I, in all my navigating of all my academic waters, have not found an advisor who was better skilled than she is across the board. Not just the support and the structure and knowing that she's behind you all the time, but she had expectations. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was this really nice balance of emotional support and discipline, and that made me who I am today. I love that idea that I am all in for you, but I also expect you to rise up to the level that I am trying to get you to. It's a partnership. The analogy I've used before is that some students think that their education is like an escalator that they climb on at the bottom and it somehow carries them to the top. It's not. It's a stairway and some of the steps are pretty big. And as your mentor, I am going to help, but you have to do the work to be able to get up those steps. And so I hear the love of her job in her voice, the love of her students in her voice, and I also hear a certain toughness in there too. Absolutely. So kind of working our way backwards in her comments, I could not agree more with her concerns about role conflict. Mm -hmm. What is best for you is not necessarily what is best for your student. And being able to identify that and being able to have an intentional plan to address that, I think there's not a more important thing to consider in the current day and age. I will take that up a level and say that it's unfair to expect a lot of early career faculty to know quite how to navigate those waters. There are tremendous pressures on early career faculty. On the one hand, students are these wonderful engines that help your train to go, but not all of the things that you are doing are things that are of interest to them. And I think that's where a senior person, someone who is helping you as a more junior person to become a better mentor can offer some perspective. As an elder, I try to peek in on the mentoring that's going on where my early career faculty are working with students. We've had a number of relationships where I co-advise or I meet with the faculty, I meet with the students to see how things are going because I want the early career person to develop as a mentor and you know, I think some of these questions need to be asked that she addresses, and that role conflict is definitely a challenging one. It ties back to several themes that have been raised, but starting with Andrea, and it's not a shock in that Lori's fingerprints are all over Andrea as well, <laughs> communication and that mm -hmm. individual development plan and identifying the potential for role conflict and to get out in front of it. How many things have you had to deal sure. with as an administrator where if you thought one well-placed email, one hallway conversation, mm -hmm. one little memo of understanding could have avoided this entire thing? Mm -hmm. For young people to be able to say, bring a graduate student into the lab and talk about this openly with them and lay out expectations I think it's a huge advantage to getting out ahead of these things and resolving issues before they become problematic. I agree. And I would like to add something to that. You are, in fact, not always the best mentor for a particular person. We like to think that we have grown into being wonderful mentors and that we are flexible and able to accommodate a wide variety of interests and personality types, etc., but there are some students that it is absolutely in their best interest to be working with somebody else. 
That might not be apparent early on in their graduate program. It might be that their interests have evolved so that they have a much, much better alignment with someone else. When that is becoming obvious in a relationship with a student, then I see it as my goal to try to help them make connections. And sometimes that connection is having a mentorship team. And there's a lot of that that goes on now. And I think that's a great thing. But sometimes you actually need someone else in the control tower. And when we realize that, I think that is a huge win for the student, not because I want to get rid of any students at all. I feel my job is to help put the pieces in place for them to have the greatest chance of success in the things that they're interested in. And I have to understand that sometimes I am not the piece that will help them be most successful. There's also an emotional supportive element that I have had students where I get to a point where I say, I don't feel like I'm able to offer the guidance that you are most looking for. So it's not a mechanical, I don't know how to use R, you figure out somebody who does. But you get to a point where you say, you know, this isn't working and let's talk about making a change to get your needs met in a better way. Mm -hmm. Tate has had a number of music teachers for different types of music. And one of his best teachers, I remember when she pulled us aside and she said, I'm probably only going to be good for him for another year or so. He's going to require someone at another level. I had so much respect for that teacher she recognized his growth and when it was time for him to be better served by someone else. And sometimes it's a matter of fit. Sometimes I have students who are just so much smarter than I am and they might be better aligned with someone else who can take them to that next level. Another thing I really liked, and I had to cut out again, I went from 45 minutes to six minutes. So whole Mm -hmm. lots of fun things fell by the wayside. But she and I had a really funny conversation that she terrifies her students. Mm -hmm. During that conversation, she said, I never terrified you, did I? And I was like, oh, good Lord. (laughs) We all lived in fear. (laughs) And It was just as she said, is it wasn't like we were afraid you were going to fire us, that we were afraid you were going to withdraw funding, that we were afraid you were going to write us a bad letter. We didn't want to disappoint you. Of course. There was this level of performance in the lab that we were terrified that we were going to fall short of. Yeah. I had a wonderful student who I'm still very close to, but he said at one point, I was afraid you were going to yell at me. And I said, Jim, I've never in my life raised my voice to you. And very seriously, he said, you don't have to raise your voice to yell. And it was like, yeah, okay, there's a little Yoda kind of thing. (laughs) Wow. Except you would have to say, raise your voice, not you do our yell to. (laughs) Work on that a little bit. Yeah. But that notion of we don't appreciate the power that we have, Mm -hmm. right? You're just Greg. I'm just Patrick. Totally. And I love her insight of all the different ways that we wield power. Even a first-year faculty member has to embrace that you have moved into a more powerful position than you've ever been in your life. One of Lori's underlying themes, though, also is love. I can hear how much she cares about being a mentor. I can hear how much she loves her students. That it's probably even the number one thing that she identifies with out of all of her skills. That's the one that it sounds like she really takes to heart most deeply. 
And I consider that a unifying theme for all of the people who have contributed today, that every one of these people consider mentoring not just incredibly important, but they consider it part of their identity, they consider it a passion, and they have so much love for their students and what they do. You're exactly right, is even though advisors can set deadlines and can express disappointment, can be grumpy and can be short-tempered, but there is this core of caring and commitment and support mm-hmm. I don't think you can be a good and effective mentor if your heart is not really into it. Amen, my friend. Greg and I so appreciate people contributing to this. There's so much good stuff here to think about and to ponder in your own approach to advising, your own approach to mentoring. Mm -hmm. I myself, I have a new student coming in. She's going to join our lab this fall. Oh, I'm sorry. Did we get her away from your (laughs) program? Oh, I'm sorry. How awkward. You know what, Patrick? I would want for her whatever is the best fit. And if you are the best fit for her, then God help her. But straight up, I'm thinking about how can I draw on some of what we just heard from these people to try to help her tolerate (laughs) me for 60 straight months. (laughs) On a larger note, I would like to thank you, Patrick, for a great season two. So much fun stuff. 34 episodes this season. I had such a wonderful time. And thanks to all the people who have continued, strangely, to be on this ride with us. We have some things in store coming up. Do we dare say anything about what we have coming up? Give a teaser. Last summer, we had QuantiCamp with Sergeant Q. This summer, we have something else coming. And it's going to involve Professor Q. We shouldn't say more, though. Because we don't have any more. Yeah, (laughs) whatever. Just leave it at Mysterious. Just leave it at Mysterious. Dude. (laughs) Also, I think we should formally acknowledge that we hired Evan. Ethan. Ethan as an intern. We voted, and it was like three to one. Sorry, Jiffy. And so he has joined us. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to it. Yep. And Ethan is going to be helping us with the workshop that you and I have coming up. Greg and I are foolish enough to spend more time together because we just don't interact enough as it is. (sighs) But May 24th, we're offering a five-day class in measurement modeling. So if you can't stand to be away from us, you can join us for that. And Ethan was doing all this work to help with the class, but we had not invited him to be a Mm -hmm. TA, which um, was a little on the awkward side. As some of you let us know. And Ethan, let us know. Uh But we're very excited. Is sardonic, sarcastic, surly adolescent Ethan will help Mm -hmm. keep Greg and I on track, mostly with a series of sighs, eye rolls, and messages sent directly to participants that Greg and I can't see that makes fun of us. (laughs) So if that's not a positive sell, I don't know what is. You've mentored him well. (laughs) Take care, everybody. Thanks for everything. Thanks, everybody. Try to think of a person who annoys you the most and tell them they can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast platform and tell them to please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. 
Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch to celebrate Cinco de Cuatro at redbubble.com, where all the proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, a podcast that for those of you who have been with us since the beginning amounts to 66 hours, 32 minutes, and 11 seconds. Think about that for a moment. This episode of Quantitude is brought to you by Bad Star Wars Jokes, offering up such gems as, what's the difference between Boba Fett and a time machine operated by Marty McFly? One's a Mandalorian, and the other's a Mand-Delorean. What did Obi-Wan tell Luke when he was having a difficult time using his chopsticks? Use the forks, Luke. Why was the Millennium Falcon easier to fly after The Force Awakens? Well, it was now hands-free. And why did Star Wars Episode 4, 5, and 6 come out before 1, 2, and 3? Because in charge of directing, Yoda was. This is most definitely not NPR. Well, I guess this is my new office. Oh, what is that smell? Oh no, is that the lemur's litter box? Oh, Go to college, Ethan. You'll get a great job. Go to graduate school, Ethan. You really need that PhD. Get a postdoc, Ethan. You definitely need additional training in quantitative methods. Thanks, Mom. Hey, is that a door? Um, hello? Oh my god. You can dance. You can chime. Having the time of your life. Holy crap. Ugh. Excuse me. Good god. Never speak up for a man singing in the shower. Are you heaven? It's, it's Ethan, the new intern. Yes, well... Please, dear God, don't say that name. Did someone say Jiffy? Oh my God, I've got to get a real job. Sing it, Frank. See that girl. Be that girl. Watch that scene. Watch that scene. Hear the dancing queen. Oh yes, dancing queen.